enter page 53, turn back to page 53. We're going to continue our series in Exodus, as you've gathered, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 17 of chapter 12. We're actually going most of the way through 12 and 13 as well, but we're not quite going to read all of that as we start. So chapter 12, verses 1 to 17, but before I read, why don't I pray? Thank you, Lord God, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, died to take away our sin so that we can know you, we can be forgiven by you, we can be welcomed into your family, we can serve you and worship you and walk through life in fellowship and communion with you. We want to pray that as we reflect on uh, this first Passover and on the death of your son this evening, that you might draw our hearts and minds more fully and clearly to yourself. Teach us, we pray, whether we're thinking about these things for the first time or the thousandth. Teach us more of your goodness and grace and shape our lives, we pray, more and more in the light of them. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus 12, starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Don't eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. 
But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. Hope you'll keep that open in front of you. There's also a pretty full outline on the back of the notice sheet, as there sometimes is. Um, this evening, we come to uh, an event that's of, of defining importance, really, not just to the book of uh, Exodus and indeed to the whole of the Bible, but to every Christian that has ever lived. It's an event that reveals to us the nature of the salvation that God gives to those who trust in Jesus Christ. When Jesus first appeared, as we've heard, John the Baptist pointed at him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Apostle Paul said later, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. And so the more we can step into the, the world of lambs and blood and doorposts tonight, the more we will know about the salvation that God offers to our world, the more we will want, I think, to worship the Lord who is the God of salvation. Uh, we're picking up where we left off last week, if you are with us, the showdown that wasn't really a showdown between the Lord on the one hand and Pharaoh. We looked at nine plagues last week and we learned three lessons. The Lord will triumph over all. The Lord's enemies will be humbled and the Lord's people will be safe. And now we come to the 10th and final plague. It reinforces those lessons. Every firstborn in Egypt is going to die. It's going to be a terrible night. Pharaoh's stubborn heart will finally surrender to reality. And God's people will finally be free from the house of slavery. But what we have going on in the text is more than just the, the climax of a, of a gripping storyline and set of events. The text doesn't just record the history, it also gives instructions about how these events will be to remembered by God's people for all time. That's because this plague is a little bit different to the other nine. It's the supreme event that is going to define the identity of God's people forever. Um, we know how um, some nations mark key events in their history, events that are so significant for them that they become embedded both in their calendar and in the psyche of the nation. So um, I think of the way our American friends get very excited about uh, Independence Day. They celebrate the, the freedom that they gained from their oppressive overlords. On the, the 4th of July, 1776, it's been downhill ever since, but we won't go into that now. We're in a different way. Think of the the way that Britain marks the end of the First World War every year with two minutes of silence at 11 a.m. on the 11th day of the 11th month. We're not just remembering past events when we do that, although we are. We're actively identifying with them, and we're affirming that they're part of our identity as a nation. And the Exodus, Passover, was like that for the people of Israel. In fact, as you see in chapter 12, verse 2, they changed their entire national calendar 
to ensure that the whole of their national life revolved around celebrating the day of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the first month every year. And it was because God was adamant that even when future generations were born who hadn't personally lived through the Exodus, they would still own it as their Exodus, that they would forever define themselves as a people set free by the Lord so that they might serve him forever. This was the event that that created a fundamental unity between all of God's people in every generation. In just the same way that Christians in the first century and the 11th century and the 21st century and in every corner of the world and whatever language they speak are bound together because we are a people saved by the blood of Jesus. So we've got two points tonight that are about our identity, if we're those who trust and and follow Jesus, and then some big life implications of what we learn. Here's the first. We're a people set free through judgment. We're a people set free through judgment. It's a complex point to get our heads around, so let me start by illustrating it, and then we'll get to seeing it in the the text. So imagine I I take you hostage. Um, Not something I'm planning to do. You can sit easy, pulse can come down again. But imagine I take you hostage and I lock you up in one of the cupboards that we keep in the back here for naughty members of staff. And then I, I stand guard outside and I refuse to let you go. You are now my prisoner. You'll see that the only way that you can be free is if someone comes along and overpowers me. Your freedom can only be secured by my defeat. That's what's going on here in Exodus. The only way that God's people can be completely free to leave Egypt and to serve God in the promised land in the way that they're meant to is if God acts in judgment to disarm, to overpower their Egyptian overpressors, oppressors, and captors. Chapter 12, verse 12, if you might glance at it, is key on this. God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And what's going to happen is the final and most severe of the plagues. Direct payback, actually, for what Pharaoh did earlier in the book. Do you remember he ordered the killing of every Israelite baby boy? And so now every firstborn in Egypt will die. To put it differently, Pharaoh had oppressed God's firstborn, Israel. And so now every firstborn Egyptian will die as well. And it's going to be a night like no other. Chapter 11, verse 6 says, There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there never has been, nor ever will be again. And we can feel the the horror of that. Um, I don't normally ask you to participate in sermons, but could you just put your hand up for a second if you're the oldest sibling or an only child in your family? You're particular. That's quite a high percentage. You're quite. You're particularly vested uh, in what's going on this evening. Every firstborn, male or female, uh, doesn't matter whether your parents were royalty or whether they were slaves. You'd all be gone by the morning. 
so that just as the, the whole nation of Egypt had participated in the oppression and murder of, Isra of the Israelites for decades, so now God says this whole nation is going to suffer. And as we've come to expect in Exodus, everything happens just as the Lord says. Go on to chapter 12 and verse 29, where we get the report. 1229, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. It's quite striking, though, that as all of these firstborn die, God described it in the verse we looked at, not just as, a, an, not as an act of judgment, on the, not just on the people of Egypt, but on their gods as well. Um, we've seen already in the plagues that God has been demonstrating his superiority over the Egyptian gods. We thought about this last week. You remember they worshipped things like the river Nile and the sun. But the, the Nile can't be a very powerful god because it gets turned to blood. And the sun can't be a very powerful god because God put a plague of darkness and plunged the land into darkness. So the, but the Lord's superiority over the gods of Egypt is seen most clearly in this final plague. Think of the, if I can put it this way, think of the job that the gods of Egypt were supposed to do. The Egyptians thought, well, we'll worship these gods, we'll make sacrifices to them. And in return, their job is to protect and to prosper us as a nation. And so on that night, as every house in Egypt was filled with the sound of wailing mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, the whole world was being told that the gods of Egypt were useless nothings. And it is the Lord alone who is the God of all the earth. How does that work for us today? Um, we're obviously not slaves of Pharaoh. And although there's lots of terrible oppression in the world today, the, the Bible never encourages us to think of our struggles against injustice as reruns of the Exodus narrative. It highlights instead the way that every human being who is outside of Christ needs to be set free from a different kind of slavery whether we're young or old, rich or poor, black or white. Listen to Jesus himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. He's not saying that we're all as bad as we could be all of the time. But the reason that none of us is able to leave our sin and selfishness completely behind is that we're slaves to it. It's not a diagnosis that we love hearing, but it is a point that's easily proven by anyone who ever tries to just go one day, one day without saying or thinking something that is unkind, impure, untrue. We just can't do it because by nature we're slaves to sin. We need to be set free. But the, the Bible would add, when, by nature, we're not just slaves to sin, but to death because we all die. 
and even to the devil himself, strange as that sounds, because our default is to follow his way of looking at the world in which God is forgotten and I'm in charge. So there's a tragic irony to modern life. I suspect that our society celebrates personal freedom more loudly and aggressively than any before us. But the further and faster we dive down the rabbit hole of enthroning ourselves, the more we just show ourselves to be slaves. Jesus, though, is the great redeemer, the great liberator. He said, if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. And as he died and rose again, he was crushing the power of sin and of death and of the devil so that everybody who trusts in him might be set free. He said of his death, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, the devil, be cast out. So there's a clear parallel going on. We don't just read this Exodus story as a historical record of a time when God acted to rescue a previous generation of his people. We're meant to see in it a picture of our own rescue and to allow it to shape our identity every, much as, every bit as much as God wanted it to shape theirs. They were people set free through judgment on Egypt and their gods. We're a people set free through God's judgment on his enemies today. Christians are no longer slaves. Isn't that incredible? To sin, to death, to the devil, because we've been set free. It's a wonderful thing, just practically for a second. We're going to apply a bit more later on. But it means that the, the Christian is no longer powerless in the face of sin and temptation. And we often feel as though we are, but we're not. We've been set free. We now have the power of God himself living within us to help us to live in a way that is pleasing to him. And so the Apostle Paul writes, well, because of this, don't present the parts of your body to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, for sin will have no dominion over you. As I say, more of that application in a moment, but let's just see the second part of our identity first. We're not just set free through judgment. Maybe more familiar to us, we're set free from judgment as well. Um, we saw last week another lesson that's recurred this evening. All through the plagues, the Lord was making a clear distinction between his people and the Egyptians. So their livestock died, but not even one Israelite animal got so much as a sniffle. They got boils, but only them. It was their land that was hit with hail and plunged into darkness, but Goshen, where the Israelites were living, was untouched. And it was all to show those truths, that the Lord's enemies will be humbled, but his people will be kept safe. That happens again here, but this time there is a, a difference. This is the first time that the Israelites have had to do anything 
in order to benefit from God's protection. They're not earning their own salvation as they do what God tells them, of course. It is God who initiates, God who communicates the plan for their rescue. It's God who makes it effective. But they do need to appropriate it personally. If the Israelites do nothing, their firstborn will die too. And so they need a faith in God that's going to work itself out in action. They need to take God at his word and act on it. The detail of the plan was the bit I read out at the start of chapter 12. So there's this lamb without blemish. It's to be taken and killed. And its blood is then going to be daubed on the doorposts. And that blood, we're told, will be a sign that marks that household out, that family out, as those who trust in God's rescue plan. So that when the Lord went through Egypt that night, he saw the blood and he passed over that house. And the firstborn inside lived because the blood of the lamb had shielded them from the Lord's judgment. Now, of course, in one sense, the Lord doesn't need the sign. He knows already who believes in him and who doesn't. But it was important that the people buy into his plan of salvation and demonstrate that they trust in it. Maybe there in, in some houses there was flat-out refusal. I don't see why we have to do anything. Of course God's going to save us. That's his job. Maybe in other houses there was an argument. I can't be bothered with the, the blood thing. Why can't we all just choose our own way to be safe? And I bet in every house there was a very nervous firstborn. Imagine a little lad called Benjamin. And uh, his parents send him to bed at seven as usual. And his little brother and sister, they're fine. They slip straight off into the sleep of the righteous. But Benjamin can't sleep very well that night. He creeps back downstairs at 7.30 and says, Dad, have you done it yet? No, son, it's a little bit early. Eight o'clock, back downstairs. Mum, I can't sleep. What if it doesn't work? Son, of course it's going to work. The Lord has said it will work. You're not going to forget to do it. Of course we're not going to forget. Nine o'clock comes and goes, still no sleep. At ten, Benjamin's back downstairs. Dad's on the sofa, snoozing in front of the football. Dad, what are you doing? The Lord could strike me down at any moment. It's all right, Benj. I've already done it. Come and see for yourself. You are completely safe. I want to tell us that the same is or could be true for each one of us tonight. The Lord Jesus Christ is our perfect, spotless Passover lamb. He shed his precious, precious blood so that anyone who trusts in him will never be condemned for our sins as we deserve on the day when he judges the world but will be kept completely safe in his hands forevermore. So we're not just a, a people, if we're Christians, who have been saved through 
judgment on God's enemies, if we've trusted and believed in Jesus, we're a people who have been set free and saved from judgment because he shed his blood in our place. When the Christian looks at Christ on the cross, we don't just say, behold the Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. Wonderful as that is. We say, behold the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And God's love in Jesus isn't just something that we receive as a, as a gift. It becomes our identity. This is who we are. We are a people who have been set free from judgment by the blood of Jesus Christ. We'll give the rest of our time to the three implications on the sheet. The first is worship. It comes from verse 27 of chapter 12. Um, Moses has just passed on the Lord's instructions about the, uh, the lamb. He's told the elders of Israel that they've got to celebrate the Passover every year. He's told them they've got to tell their kids what it means. And then we read, do you see it? Verse 27 of chapter 12. The people bowed their heads and worshipped. There are lots of things that you might want to do in response to the Lord of the Exodus. And lots of things that Exodus tells us to do as we respond to what the Lord reveals about himself. But I don't know we'll find anything more important than this. The people bowed their heads and they worshipped. Our God is the author of history. He is the Lord of salvation. He's chosen to save us and to make us his own at the cost of the life of his only son. And so his people love to bow their heads and to worship. I wonder if sometimes some, some of us are just so busy doing life that we seldom take the time to stop, to remember our God and what he's done, and to worship him. I wonder if sometimes some of us are so busy serving God, ironically, that in our activism, we too can forget to stop and worship. And then we gather as a church to worship. We can still feel as though we're doing him a favor by turning up. Or we can go through the motions with our mouths without ever really engaging our hearts. And then when he sends us out into the world to live a life of 24-7 worship, we can soon forget him and just presume he'll be there for us when we need him. But he is the Lord of all. He will judge the living and the dead, and he has saved us. Of course we want to stop. Of course we want to worship him. And then we want to get up and obey him. Second implication, celebration. I could have gone for commemoration here. I think both words are important. It, it's so telling, I think, that even before the first Passover, the people are being told how to remember the Passover in years and for years to come. God says, that I want you to do it and to celebrate the Passover every year in this way, to commemorate this event. And your kids are going to ask, why are you doing this? Um, chapter 12, verse 26, this is what you're to say to them. This is the, a Passover to the Lord 
because he passed over our houses when he struck the Egyptians, but spared us. But it was never just an, an act of um, somber remembrance. The Passover was a, was a feast. It was a, a festival. It was a, a celebration as well as a commemoration of what the Lord has done. And those of us who are Christians today, we celebrate, we commemorate our own rescue in at least a couple of ways. The first is what we're going to do next Sunday evening when we share the Lord's Supper together. Because just as the, the death of Jesus fulfills the, the killing of those first Passover lambs, so too the Lord's Supper fulfills the feasts of the Passover and the unleavened bread that the people were to celebrate every year. So I know that when you come to church sometimes, for all of us, the Lord's Supper, when you see it laid out at the front here, can feel a bit routine. Maybe we've been in churches that have eaten some bread and drunk some wine so many times that we can just sort of go through the motions with our bodies on autopilot. We'll want, I hope, next week to remind ourselves of the meaning behind the sacrament. We're not just reminding ourselves of a past event. We're actively identifying with Christ on the cross. We're participating in his salvation. We're saying that his story is our story. It's our identity. And we are celebrating all that is ours in him. And we're trusting him to help us to live for him from now on. So that's one way we celebrate, we commemorate today. The second, the slightly more surprising way that we keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread today, we'll find in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I've put the reference on the sheet. Can you just flick on to make sure you're awake? Uh, to page 954, if you're in our Bible, page 954, you'll find 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 954. Um, the Corinthian church is in a bit of a mess at this point. They've, they've got into a place somehow where they are arrogant as a church, despite the fact that there's lots of sexual immorality going on in their midst. Obviously, that shouldn't happen. Paul says that should never happen in God's church. And glance at verse 7. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So back in the Old Testament, the Feast of Unleavened Bread saw the Israelites spend a week um, eating bread without yeast in it. Uh, on that first Passover night, they didn't have time to make bread in the usual way before they left Egypt. They ate bread without yeast, and so that's how they remembered it for a week of that every year. And now Paul says the equivalent for us is not ridding our diet of literal physical yeast for one week of the year. The way we do it today is by ridding our church family of the spiritual yeast of malice and evil every day of the year. So not physical yeast one week of the year, but the spiritual malice and evil every week of the year. 
And I think this is the point, that Jesus didn't offer himself as a sacrificial lamb so that our churches could tolerate and celebrate and allow for sin in our midst of any kind. That's not why he died. It wasn't his purpose. He died to purchase for himself a people who would be committed to purity and to truth and to godliness. And so we celebrate the feast today, not just by sharing in the Lord's Supper, but by taking sin seriously. So it made me stop and think, how do you spot the church that takes the death of Jesus seriously? How do you spot the church that takes the death of Jesus seriously? It's not necessarily the one that's got crosses all over the place. It's not just the people who sing about the cross and who preach about the cross. It's the church that is unafraid to exercise, actually, active church discipline of every kind, to spur one another on towards love and good deeds, to encourage one another to get rid of sin, because the way that we show that the cross matters is by guarding the purity of the church. And that brings us to our third implication, consecration. Let's go back to Exodus, just as we close, if we might. Exodus chapter 13. We are back. I promise you this is the shortest of all of them. We're on page 55. Page 55. Glance at chapter 13 and verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all of the firstborn. Whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. So it's a pretty simple principle. The life of the firstborn has been spared by God, and so the life of the firstborn belongs to God. And for us, it's not just the firstborn who have been spared by God. It's all of us, anyone who has trusted in Jesus. You've been spared by him from his judgment. Then you and I belong to him. The Apostle Paul says, you are not your own. You are bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. And we need to register, I think, that the end goal of all of these different rituals, these different ways of remembering the Exodus, these feasts and festivals, wasn't ritual for ritual's sake. God has always had a loathing for empty form and heartless religion. Verse 8 of chapter 13 tells us why he did it. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It shall be a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, so that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. I was thinking of a, a parent I know who's got the tattoo of the name of their child uh, all down their arm. It's a personal preference, but it is a clear way for them of saying, my unforgettable, my unmissable priority in life is my child, and I love them. And God says, if I can put it like this, that all of these festivals were meant to be like a, like a tattoo for the people of Israel. Their purpose would be that there would be an, 
an unmissable and unforgettable priority in every generation to live a life of obedience to God's word. The, the festivals were supposed to help them be a holy, consecrated people, not casual, occasional obedience, but all day, every day, forever. If someone was consecrated to the Lord, it meant literally they were, they were given to the Lord as holy, that they were dedicated to God, that they were given exclusively to his purposes. And that wasn't just God's desire for his people then. It's his desire for us today. We're not our own. We belong to him. Well, we've been set free through judgment and from judgment. That's who we are as God's people. And therefore, we are a people of worship and celebration. And we are entirely consecrated, given to the Lord who saved us. Let's pray. Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. It humbles us and it amazes us, our Lord and God, that you were willing to send your only son and that he were willing to offer himself as our Passover lamb upon the cross so that we might be set free from sin and from death and from the evil one. We might be brought into your kingdom, into your family. We might be set free from your judgment. That in Christ there is no condemnation. That we're yours forever, blessed by you and loved by you because of him. We are humbled. We are thankful. And so we worship you, almighty God, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We love you because you first loved us. And we pray that you would help us to worship you in spirit and truth when we gather like this, but all day and every day, that we would remember and celebrate and commemorate the death of the Lord Jesus appropriately as we share the Lord's Supper, as we commit ourselves to being a pure people and church family, that we would be consecrated wholly to you. We know that we're not our own. So help us, please, to glorify you in our body. We thank you that the death of Jesus is sufficient for the forgiveness of every sin. And we worship you in his precious name. Amen. We're going to end by singing.